it looks like by the end of April, we will be shifting from people being denied vaccine because they're not in the right priority to, okay, who else can we get to get the vaccine? Welcome to the Rain Insights podcast on COVID-19. I'm Emily Donahue. In the United States, more than half a million lives have been ended by COVID-19. Around the world, more than two and a half million. Tragic milestones, to be sure. And yet, on the horizon is the possibility that with new vaccines approved, the world may be closer to getting the year-long pandemic and all of its disruptions under control. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang in this week's COVID podcast. Fred and Bill, thank you uh, once again for spending some time and in discussing what uh, might be of interest and helpful to our audience. Um, the J&J vaccine, the variants in terms of uh, the different forms of the virus that are now manifesting themselves some recent good news uh, around studies coming out of Israel and the UK. So, Fred, maybe we'll start with you. Give us some insights about the J&J vaccine and the approval process and what it means. Yeah, I think it was uh, it was predictable, but it, it went as as we predicted in that uh, went through the large committee uh, very positively. Uh, the efficacy is uh, very reasonable and uh, well within the standards of expectation. It was in the order of 70% efficacy. Uh, and the uh, as far as preventing serious illness uh, and ho- as preventing hospitalization and death, it's at 100%. So a very good news. And I think it's FDA is meeting as we speak. Uh, to make the decision about uh, emergency use authorization. So I don't see any reason why it, it shouldn't. And as we've talked about before, the logistics for this vaccine are much simpler and that you just need a single injection. And so we can get pretty much comparable efficacy to the other vaccines, but only give it once. Bill, um, I know you've been very focused both in terms of the efficacy of the new vaccine as well as uh, some of the advantages, and uh, I also read earlier today that possibly the the Pfizer vaccine does not have to be uh, refrigerated to the low temperatures that previously had been thought. It'd be great to get your perspectives on uh, the new vaccine as well as uh, what we're learning about the deliverability of the Pfizer. Well, on, on the J&J, I am interested to see what the um, advisory committee comes out with because while the the efficacy, as Fred said, has been shown to be definitely well within the uh, the acceptable range, unfortunately, the efficacy at older ages and especially older ages where where people had uh, comorbidities was significantly lower than that seen with the mRNA vaccines. So I, I would not it would, it would not surprise me if the committee came out and said that. Uh, J&J is to be, I don't know how they would do this, but basically preferentially used in, in younger age groups and preferentially use the uh, Pfizer or Moderna vaccine in the older age groups. I don't know, Fred, do you have any thoughts on that on the, along those lines? Uh, yeah, Bill, I, I have heard that. I haven't read the final report yet, but that would make sense. Uh, the mRNA uh, uh, vaccines are so immunogenic and do such a great job at stimulating even the elderly 
and very little difference. So uh, I think that would be a very reasonable approach um, and is a, is a way to get around the lower efficacy in those that are older. Now, I, my understanding was the number of cases in the above 65 age group was relatively low. So their conclusions are not as firm as they might be. And the other thing that I thought was was very interesting with the J&J vaccine is that their one-dose data was actually pretty comparable to what's coming out in Pfizer one-dose data. And J&J right now has a 30,000-person study ongoing looking at what if you add a second shot to the regime. Um, so we may very well see that down the road that, that, that J&J is also a two-shot regimen. We know the one-shot regimen is, is definitely in the acceptable range, especially for younger people, but it may be that the two-shot brings them up to the same level as we see with the mRNA vaccines, but we're not going to know that answer for, for at least a couple of months. But then in terms of the logistics, yes, the, the, it's looking like with the Pfizer, remember Pfizer had a more stringent refrigeration or freezing requirement than even the uh, Moderna vaccine did. And what they're finding is that, yes, it can in fact tolerate normal freezer temperatures, not ultra cold freezer temperatures, but normal freezer temperatures for several weeks. That would just make the logistics much, much easier. And as you guys uh, think about the issue of supply and uh, meeting demand, um, have you sort of had any perspective on what uh, the approval of the J&J vaccine could mean for available supply and the ability to roll this out at a more accelerated basis? I've actually gone through and cranked the numbers on this. Um, and it's actually, it's very interesting, I think, when you go through the actual numbers. So there are 330 million Americans, 75 million children. So take them off the table to begin with. So that brings us down to 255 million uh, who need to be vaccinated. So then from there, we unfortunately know that the, all the studies, the surveys are showing that about a third of the people are going to turn down the vaccine. I think that we're going to be able to mitigate that with a very good education program. Plus, as people see that people are getting this vaccine and they're not getting sick from the vaccine, I think we're going to see that go down. But let's let's say that it's around 25%, which is a lot less than what the current studies are saying. So when you when you look at it that way, um, we need to have roughly, and again, I'm, I'm rounding here liberally, um, roughly 200 million people that, that need and want to be vaccinated. Um, as of right now, by the end of March, Pfizer and Moderna have, when you put their numbers together, they say that they will have delivered 220 million doses or enough to immunize 110 million people. In addition, by the end of March, Johnson & Johnson says that they will have delivered 20 million doses, enough to immunize, fully immunize 20 million people. So now we're to 130 of that, um, of the 200, of the roughly um, 200 million that we need to vaccinate. And then they're delivering at the rate of about 20 million uh, a week that's what they plan on during uh, once they get get past March, about 20 million a week, and then you add in the the J and J vaccine. And when you crank all those numbers, it looks like by the end of April, we will be shifting from people being denied vaccine because they're not in the right priority to 
okay, who else can we get to get the vaccine to to a uh, an active marketing program to get people to get vaccine? I think that's going to be a lot sooner than people were were thinking. Now that's just my my reading of it. I um, there have been other articles that have gone along the those same lines. Um, and clearly, I've always been an optimist on these kinds of things. But I, I think by May first, we're going to everybody who wants a vaccine can get it. Yeah, I, Bill, Bill's a supply chain expert, and and I agree with his assessment. It does look like everybody that wants the vaccine will get it by that by uh, late spring, and uh, that's really exciting. We're actually starting right now in our area to address the distrust, and those that are exhibiting vaccine hesitancy. It's really important not to criticize these individuals, but to be empathetic and to really encourage continued communication and patience. And as long as we do that, we'll be fine. Uh, Let me throw out the question of the different variations of the virus and what we're seeing now and how uh, people should begin to think about this. So, uh, Bill, maybe we'll start with you. Well, so I think Fred will have more on this, but the biggest thing I'll say is that it's been very encouraging, these studies that are coming out of uh, Israel, and then there's also been some corroborating work from the UK that is showing that if you had COVID virus, uh, if you've had disease at some point, that is not necessarily protective against uh, especially the UK, there's not as much data on protection against the uh, the South African variant because there hasn't been as much volume. But it is not it's not excessively protective against the UK. But if you get even one dose of vaccine, it is very protective against the UK. So that's that's very very encouraging. And similarly, two doses of the vaccine are protective against the UK variant. And since that has been the primary variant. Um, then the other thing with the variants is there's this the the California variant that uh, there was said that is possibly responsible for the huge surge that was seen in California um, in the you know, around the holiday period. But even if that's the case, California is is in fact following the rest of the country down to lower levels. So even if it was there, uh, whatever is driving the the, vir- the rates down now is driving the rate of that variant down also. Yeah, I, I agree with uh, Bill's analysis, and uh, the the mutant or uh, the mutations in the UK. There's only one mutation at 501 amino acid in the spike protein. And a single point mutation would be unlikely to drop the efficacy of the vaccines. And it's been shown not to reduce efficacy. Therefore, these vaccines will be protective for the UK. Now, I am a little bit worried about the South African because uh, certainly for the uh, AstraZeneca uh, vaccine, there did show reduced efficacy. So far, the two mRNA uh, vaccines, Madeira and and Pfizer, have not shown, they uh, seem to have a minimal reduction in neutralizing antibody dilutions. And that's all that I understand so far. So that may, I think those those vaccines are going to hold up. The one that is the biggest concern is the P1, the Brazilian mutant. That has 10 mutations within the spike protein. And I'm, uh, I suspect 
that this this one may escape the vaccines to some extent. And so we really have to worry about that. Now, right now in the United States, there are very few cases of the Brazilian, not many of the South African. It's predominantly the UK strain, which the vaccine will take care of. But the other thing along those lines that's encouraging is that at least, I think all the manufacturers, but we know Moderna and Pfizer are already in development of a, a adding a, uh, uh, I don't know if you'd call it a strain, but another mRNA uh, sequence to their vaccine. And the FDA this week said that they would not require them to go through through the full study process. If, they do, if they're not changing the process at all, all they're changing is the the structure of the mRNA that's in there, they would just consider that very much the way they consider a uh, the annual changes in the flu vaccine. Um, that means that we could have, if needed, that we could have uh, an additional type of vaccine. It's not really a booster. It, it truly would be a new vaccine, but have that done on a very, very rapid basis. Um, you may possibly just incorporate it in line as we're finishing up the, the first round of vaccine, but then administered, uh, who knows when, fall, next, next, uh, next January, sometime along that, if we need it, uh, it would be available fairly easily. Yeah, that, that's really reassuring. And it'd be very much like the influenza vaccines, which are adjusted and modified uh, frequently, depending on what particular strain is most prevalent. One, and the other thing that's going on is the CDC now has set up a system to actually get sequences or, or virus strains from all over the country and will be doing full genomic sequencing to identify other uh, variants so and and determine whether they are going to escape the vaccine. And then again, Madeira and Pfizer can adjust their vaccines very, very quickly to address those escape mutants. Fred, you just touched upon the final point I wanted to get to, which is in terms of what we are now doing differently, what we have learned from this and the potential for you know future viruses that could pose a global pandemic risk. So in uh, large part, you have uh, answered some of the questions. CDC is now tracking these things uh, more proactively. Uh, secondly, uh, I note that there appears to be at least a reopening of channels of collaboration, cooperation with the World Health Organization. What else uh, is being done? What else should we be doing? Well, uh, what is going on now, it is recognized that we do need to have a, a worldwide organization or, or a series, a group of experts that are continually monitoring for these uh, new strains of viruses and bacteria. And uh, the investment required, I, I just heard a lecture yesterday, uh, to get a, the fundamental program together uh, to keep an eye on this is only about $5 million. And yet we've lost trillions because we, we shortchanged these efforts. We don't need standard epidemiologists. We don't need physicians. The expertise that's most important will be veterinarians because almost all these viruses are going to come from animals, other animals than humans. So veterinarians are going to be in the best position to identify these new uh, strains 
and get on them very quickly. So along those lines, the um, when I was at Homeland Security, I developed a lot of respect for the uh, CDC and the U.S. Public Health Service Epidemiologic Investigation Service, the EIS. And uh, unfortunately, the EIS had their funding uh, for, through multiple administrations. You know, when there wasn't anything going on, of course, you cut the funding for things like that because, well, what do we need this for? We're not having any problems. And now I think there's a recognition now that the EIS is a very, very important activity for the, for the U.S. government, for CDC, for Department of Homeland Security. And hopefully that means that, that EIS is going to be well-funded going forward. And that's the group that will also be participating with WHO and ideally pushing WHO, if not leading WHO, whether it's formally or informally, to do the right things in epidemiologic investigations. Another theme you're going to hear a lot about, David, is the concept of one health. And what that is, is we're looking at health not only in human beings, but all animals and plants. They all interact and they all are important. Um, for instance, uh, one of the reasons we think there's so many of these viruses spreading from other animals to humans is deforestation. It turns out that the same things that are driving increased carbon dioxide uh, due to deforestation are also driving uh, the interface between humans and animals at a much tighter interface, which is resulting in the spread of these various uh, new uh, pathogens. The, the other aspect here, and I'd, I'd just like to maybe get your views on, on this as a final point for today's podcast, is that... Um, these vaccines were created in record time with uh, record efficacy and understandably because of, you know, prior history of viruses and vaccine development, um, expectations were, you know, exceeded here. And because this may happen again, do you guys have any thought about how our government or broadly nations in general should be cooperating, working together, creating a fund in advance so that if if new vaccines or variants of these vaccines have to be created, uh, we don't have to go through a cumbersome and sometimes very much time-laden pr process, but we'll have the funding in place and the necessary people and agencies and we'll call it uh, agreements uh, already there. Uh, to be ready for the next one. What's well, interesting, David, that um, I, I do I participate in a number of study sections for the NIH and I uh, worked in the intramural program reviewing uh, various uh, research projects. And one of the things that was done about 15 years ago was they created a vaccine, a special institute for vaccines to accelerate the ability to produce vaccines. So this has been going on for 15 years, this investment, and now we are seeing the results of those investments. mRNA uh, vaccines have been studied for over 15 years, but they have never been uh, commercially released until now. But there was a tremendous amount of research prior to this. So it turns out we did invest and we're now benefiting from that investment. And certainly we need to... Then people stopped investing temporarily, but I think everybody realizes we need to reinvest again and continue uh, with our research. 
I, and I, I concur completely. Um, the, well, one of the points I make when people tell me that they're scared about this because we, quote, invented this vaccine in less than a year, I, I make, exact, make exactly the point that Fred just said. No, this is, invest, this is research that's been going on since or even before SARS. This is not this is not new. It's just that we they were given the funding to put the final cap that they needed on this vaccine. The other the other point I'd make about the the research on this is remember one of the national treasures in terms of uh, research against all types of biologic agents has been for many years the the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Disease. It really followed on from from Major Walter Reed, who was the you know, the first major warrior against microbial disease in the in the country, if not the world. And uh, the the army has had a, played a large role in that. In recent years, the army's role has been decreased along those lines, but they've consistently demonstrated good ability. I hope that we don't see that. Uh, taken out. It's good to have two separate organizations within the country, NIH and the USAMRID, that that work together but apart on uh, develop on the developments that we need to move us forward. I'm going to take uh, this week's podcast as uh, beginning and ending on an optimistic note, notwithstanding the fact that we uh, commemorated this week uh, the loss of 500,000. Uh, Americans in a uh, rather eloquent and somber series of remarks um, coming out of the White House. And so good news with J&J, good news with the data, good news with certain studies. And I'm hearing from both uh, Bill, you and Fred, uh, that the building blocks are in place, that if we continue to stay focused on this issue, we actually will have a better response mechanism and we can be more proactive and more prepared next time either a new virus emerges or variants sort of come forward and so thank you again both as always for and look forward to our next conversation right david thank you thank you david Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. You can sign up for our coronavirus solution and get critical information on the COVID-19 pandemic delivered daily. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R A N E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thank you for listening. <laughs>